Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So gang, we are in the midst of a series on atonement theories as we um, are in, in the season of Lent. And just a reminder, if you're joining us for the first time, atonement theories are those ways that we look at and and try to help us to understand exactly why Jesus died on the cross for us. And so we've looked at, uh, we did an introductory episode where we just kind of uh, pinpoint a couple uh, different theories. And last week we spent some time looking at Christus Victor. And this week we're moving on to a new theory called penal substitution. So Steve, why don't you um, help us make some maybe some connections to the sure. last series and then uh, sure. on to this one. So like you said, in a sense, the, the phrase um, atonement theory is just a very fancy way of saying we're intentionally asking what do we think actually happened at the cross and why does Jesus die? What, what is that all about? And last time we talked about um, one way of thinking about it or picturing it, which is Jesus sort of fighting this sort of cosmic battle against the powers of evil or the devil or sin that are out there externally and that what basically happens at the cross is sort of Jesus defeats evil or sometimes it sort of tricks evil into defeating Mm -hmm. itself, that kind of thing. And the idea is that the cross is this objective event in history that does something. It's not, regardless of whether I'm aware of it or believe hard enough in it, this, this did something to change the universe, but it's it's about the powers that are out there. In my mind, I often um, picture the Christus Victor model as being kind of like the end of the last Harry Potter book. So spoiler alert, if you are a Harry Potter fan and haven't gotten to the last book or movie, please go read it before you watch or, or listen or be prepared. I'm about to spoil it. At the end of the last book, at the end of the last scene, uh, the big climactic battle between Harry Potter, boy wizard, and evil wizard Voldemort Uh, Voldemort uh, kills Harry and doesn't realize that Harry has a little piece of Voldemort in him that Voldemort the evil wizard had put it in that that's a plot point that's been building for about six books and in the act of killing Harry he actually just makes his own destruction possible in a way that would only be possible if Harry lays down his life and offers up to be killed so that his friends can be set free and that's it Harry uh, voluntarily surrenders to Voldemort so that his friends will be okay not knowing that uh, it'll actually destroy Voldemort he thinks it's just alright well at least my friends won't be killed, uh, and it turns out that's the very way that the evil is destroyed. That evil destroys itself uh, by destroying Harry. And in some ways, Christus Victor is this sort of Jesus fights this kind of sneaky battle against evil by saying, "Come on and get me." And it turns out that his death tries to take out mm-hmm. Jesus. It turns out that breaks even the inner logic of death and, and blows it apart. And this is our victory. Um, that we said last time has some challenges, or at least uh, some ways you can get sloppy with it. Right? Mm-hmm. We said. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get sloppy with Christus Victor if you turn it into sort of a militaristic sort of a, it's all about a battle, and Jesus needs our help to fight the battle. So everybody up in arms, we got to win the battle, because classically, Christus Victor's Jesus did this. On the other hand, it can get sloppy in the sense of, well, Jesus fought the battle, so I could be a jerk. Uh, and basically, it locates the problem outside me, that I'm just a poor, helpless victim here. It's the powers of sin and death and the devil out there that are the problem. And today we're going to be talking about uh, an approach that starts and says, maybe points the finger back at ourselves and say, no, maybe we're part of the problem Mm -hmm. and that our own sin requires some kind of... um, rectification between us and God. There's there's different ways you can talk about it. Sometimes it's like uh, uh, loan language, like it's it's money and debt, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's sort of criminal punishment language. But either way, uh, penal substitution is basically the idea that human beings have 
inculcated some kind of a debt between us and God, whether it's we committed a crime and dishonored God or owe a debt to God, and that Jesus takes our place and pays the debt. Sometimes you'll get theologians who will, who will phrase it more like Jesus takes our punishment, and sometimes it'll be Jesus pays our debt. And maybe in, in the interplay there, we'll have to see what are the strengths and weaknesses of both of those. Because there's biblical imagery for all that, mm-hmm. but uh, both raise a certain set of questions, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. I really like the way that John Calvin kind of explains penal substitution, okay. which is that um, our God is a God of righteousness, and that we are, and you know, as the God of righteousness, cannot love inequity. Mm-hmm. He cannot. He cannot love, you know, our sinful nature, and because um, it must be punished. Like we've done bad, we need to be punished. And so Christ, as a mediator, then steps in as our substitute and takes the pain and penalties of our sin unto himself. And so then God then transfers Christ's righteousness to us because that righteousness has to kind of go somewhere. So if Mm -hmm. Jesus is taking our sin and inequity upon himself, then Jesus's righteousness needs, you know, then goes to us, which is, um, which is how we are then able to be saved because Christ is a mediator for us. And classically, I mean, you can go back even further before Calvin uh, to theologians who would say things like, the gist is you need to have, the human beings owe the debt because we're the sinners, mm-hmm. but human beings can't pay the debt because we're sinners, so you need to have someone who is both God and human who can do that. And so mm-hmm. yep. like, there's this classic formulation in about the year 1000 or 1100 by uh, an English guy named Anselm of Canterbury, and he wrote a very famous bestseller in the 11th century called Cor Deus Homo, which is uh, Latin for Why the God-Man. Uh, and his argument, built out of sort of the feudal system of Europe, is we human beings, like sort of like you said, have... have uh, inculcated this uh, infinite debt because we've dishonored the you know our our Lord and Master God and we can't pay the debt ourselves. So someone who is both God and human is the only one who can solve that problem. And so basically, Anselm says the cross is God's accounting solution to the problem of human debt or sinfulness. Is that Jesus steps in as the only one who can be both human and divine, and, and mm-hmm. that's sort of what solves the problem, I guess. Um. I guess, let me ask this question, and and in fairness, there are absolutely images in Old and New Testament of our relationship with God depicted sort of like debtors who are in need of debt relief. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus often uses that imagery in his his parables, that our relationship with God is a God who cancels debts. And on the other hand, sometimes there's this image of like uh, that sin must be punished or there need to be consequences mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but I guess one of the questions that I wonder is, there's there's a tension in my mind between those two. On the one hand, um, when someone cancels a debt, nobody nobody has to like get killed for it. You know, like if, I, if I'm a yeah. lender and I cancel a debt, I'm absorbing a loss, but nobody has to die. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, if you're talking about, um, say, a criminal justice system and someone's guilty of murder, if... if my friend over there is guilty of murder, and I say to the judge, please punish me instead. I'm not really sure that anybody would say that's exactly justice either, because I'm still free to go murder people now. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, like, how does this, wh- wh- how, how do we deal with the questions that this model raises about, like, wait a second, if God's a God of justice, how, how does somebody else dying for my righteousness fix the problem? Like, how, how does, how does this, this theory of atonement address those kind of questions? Because, like, I, I, I've heard a number of folks uh, who will say things like, 
is, is when Christians talk about Jesus dying in our place, is that just a legal fiction? Is it God saying, you are guilty, I'm going to say you're not guilty uh, because I don't want to have to destroy you all, so instead I'll dump it all on Jesus? Uh, or is there something else to it that this isn't like God cooking the books? Or is that really what Christianity is? Are we saying basically that the good news is that God cooks the books? So is it God saying that we're not guilty as in we've never been guilty, or is it God saying that we have been forgiven of our guilt? Well, again, excellent question in, in my mind, but it, I guess that, that to me begs the very question, is that when you talk about forgiveness language, that I don't know why that requires anybody to die then. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you're, ta- if you're saying mm-hmm. that it's, you're innocent, but this other person has to absorb the guilt somehow or another, that still leaves the question of how is that just? I mean, like, if we applied this picture to the criminal justice system and right. said, if you're convicted of being a murderer, either you die or pick a random stranger, somebody else can die in your place, justice doesn't care as long as it gets a pound of flesh. And I guess that's my question, is to guard against, if maybe this, maybe we've stumbled onto one of the ways to do penal substitution sloppily. And like, if, if here's, here's one of those danger points that your, your theology of penal substitution can't be that um, God doesn't care who suffers as long as somebody suffers because God mm-hmm. just demands a pound of flesh for human, for human sin mm-hmm. or something like that, that somehow there's got to be a sense of how can this be, how, how can, if, if your premise starts with, if John Calvin's premise is God loves justice, are we saying then that it's just to say, we're a bunch of stinkers, we've done wrong, and Jesus steps in and goes, I'll take it all, everybody, and does that mean that we go uncorrected? Like, do I still crooked-hearted murderer in my heart still, am I free to go murder other people now because Jesus took the blame? Uh, and is that what is that what uh, the penal substitution theory means, or is there something else to it, I guess? I think Paul addresses both of those. Okay. Um, you know, where he says the wages of sin is death. So okay. clearly something needs to die in, okay. in our place. Okay. Um, and so in the Old Testament, that was the sacrifice. In the New Testament, that's Jesus. Um, but also, and I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> was you going to go, uh, should we go on in sin so that grace may abound? Yes. Um, thank you, Steve, for reading my mind. <laughs> once, you're, once you're in Romans, it's sort of like, he's reading our minds. It's like, I know what someone's going to ask. Should we go on in sin because grace, so grace may abound? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and Paul makes it very clear that just because somebody, you know, because Jesus has paid that penalty for us does not mean that we can continue in that lifestyle. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Because once you go Come there, on. Come once on, you Steve. go there. Now, when Paul's, Paul's answers, he continues. He raises that question. He lays out his, Jesus yes. died for us, uh, therefore free from sin. And then mm-hmm. he raises the, the, the counter-argument he assumes is going to be raised. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Mm-hmm. And he says in a beautiful phrase in Greek, meganoita, which we translate as like, by no means, or like, no way, buddy, or something mm-hmm. like that. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, then he goes on to say, we died to sin. How can we go on living it anymore? Now, here's the wrinkle. We aren't actually dead, <laughs> but uh-huh. in Paul's mind, we're somehow connected to the death of Jesus, and I think this becomes an important key. John Calvin would say this uh, in his own language, and, and Martin Luther and other reformers would have said this too, mm-hmm. that to be joined to Christ is somehow to be, so that in, in some sense his death does become our death, and that mm-hmm. it's not just a random sort of uh, pick anybody off the street to die, it doesn't matter who, but we're somehow joined to Christ, and that's a big deal for Paul, is that we're joined to Christ, I meaning we, we could talk about that's what happens in baptism sort of incorporated into Christ mm-hmm. as well and then therefore that Christ's death is our death because we're joined to Christ or something like that that raises another set of issues though um, and at least one of those issues is does that mean that Jesus' death is only for Christians or does Jesus' death is it for the world um, 
Because I, I was going to touch on that, Steve. You know, you said in baptism. You right. know, is that then? Do you have to be baptized right. for this to be right? right. Well, see, and like Paul seems to be comfortable like going down that line because he doesn't he doesn't raise the counter question. Well, wait, does that mean that this isn't for everybody? Mm-hmm. But um, at least modern day Christians will often go, "What about John three sixteen? God so loved the world that He gave mm-hmm. His only. That this is somehow for everybody." Mm-hmm. John Calvin, or at least later Calvinism, is comfortable saying, "Yeah, Jesus only died for Christians. If you're one of the elect." That's who Jesus died for, and Jesus' death isn't for other people, and that's how that mm-hmm. sort of deals with that wrinkle. It's sort of uh, if you're joined to Christ, Jesus' death is your death, but Jesus only died for people mm-hmm. who are the chosen elect people. And other branches of the Christian family tree would go, um, "Excuse me, I beg to differ. I thought Jesus' death was for the sins of the whole world." I mean, quoting things in the New Testament like John or First John or whatnot. Yeah, because then you get into the really tricky stuff about who is part of the elect. Right, like, right, right. Because I believe at one point John Calvin said a number, and it like in today's standards, it's a really low number. <laughs> it's like not even all like people who follow John Calvin would be part of the elect then, <laughs> right, right, let right. alone all the other actual baptized Christians, right. let alone the rest of the world right, throughout right. history. It- and, like, Calvinism as a theological system later gets comfortable with the idea of saying, okay, well, for the sake of logical consistency, we, I guess we have to say, Jesus, because Jesus' death itself actually deals with my sin, that's only possible if my death is connected, or my life is connected to Jesus' death. Therefore, Jesus only died for the, the elect, whatever that category is, some group of predestined chosen people. A lot of Christians go like, eh, red alert, red alert, danger, Will Robinson. But what if the elect is actually the entire world. And that's possible. Calvin wasn't comfortable with that. And no, later, of 16th not. century Calvinism, it wasn't comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you get later Calvinists like a Karl Barth in the 20th century who's like, yep, uh, it's, it's uh, only the elect are saved, but God reserves the right to make everybody elect because uh, it's God's choice. Um, but even at that then, then I think you're left with a different question about atonement, which is, if God has just decided from the beginning this is how the game is going to go, why does Jesus die then? Because I guess that raises in my question, in my mind, the question of is this all just a charade being played out that doesn't really need to happen? Um, that if God just decided, I'm going to forgive them all anyway. Uh, I'm, this is for everybody, and it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, cross is for everybody. I mean, you can build a theology around that. Karl Barth does that. Plenty of others do that. But then you are left asking the question. What does Jesus' death actually do? And I don't think you're left with a penal substitution picture anymore. You're sort of left with a, huh. I mean, you have to go sort of moral influence route mm-hmm. or something else. If it's yeah. a, there's a debt that has to be paid, what, like when, when someone else forgives you a debt, they, the, the loss just sort of like, they, they take the hit, but nobody has to get, nobody, nobody loses blood over it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, this is where there's a tension in the language of penal substitution, that we slide uncomfortably, or maybe we should be more uncomfortable with the way we slide between, oh, it's like a debt that is canceled, or it's like a punishment that someone else extracts from you. And I can get the idea of there's, an, uh, there's a guilt that someone has to pay for, but that's different than a debt that gets canceled, and we kind of slide between them. And again, I'm, I'm nervous that sometimes we get sloppy about it. As we're talking, you know, I think about salvation, so often we talk about it as, as being a gift, something mm-hmm. that we have to receive. And, you know, when when a debt is canceled, you know, say, say I owe you $50, and you say, you know, well, forget it, don't worry uh-huh. about it. There's nothing I have to receive right, right, on right. that end, right. you know. And so that is kind of, again, making that sloppiness for me and making it hard to understand because... Yeah. Um, you cancel my debt, so I just, you know, I, I move on. But and we lose that gift part of salvation where we have to 
receive it for ourselves. And there's another question that, like, this is one of those places where different branches of the Christian family tree will get either uncomfortable about this or be rah, rah, rah about. Because they're, like, Calvin, for example, and I'd say Lutherans, too, on this point, tend to be more like, yep, it's all a gift. You don't even, it's not, Jesus isn't waiting for mm-hmm. you to accept it. Jesus even gives you the ability to receive it or to accept it in the first place. Um, and there's other branches of the Christian family tree that would be like, no, you have to have taken the step of I have to accept it for it to be meaningful. Um, and that raises a whole ish, whole host of issues about what Jesus' death does or means. And mm-hmm. maybe Jesus' death did something, but I have to apply for it to count for me or something like that. That's a whole other set of questions. You look like give a thought. I, I, I did, but then I looked it up, and it didn't actually was relevant to the conversation <laughs> at all. So now I'm just trying to catch up, so you can erase this in the conversation. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay, so... One of the one of the maybe anchor points of this whole idea of penal substitution is is that there's some like cosmic universal system of justice that demands rectification or punishment mm-hmm. or compensation mm-hmm. or something, and I guess one of the questions that uh, occurs in my mind is who sets these rules up, and by what I, what I mean by that is is it God who's made these rules about there has to be punishment for sin. And then, if so, let's follow that out to its logical conclusion then. If God set up the rules in the first place, and then God's going to circumvent his own rules by, I'm going to send Jesus in anyway, how important were these rules in the first place? On the other hand, if these rules are even bigger or a higher authority than even God, that kind of sounds like, "Eh, I'm not sure we want to go there, right? Who set those rules? Right, right, and and shouldn't whoever set those rules be called God, and we (laughs) have like a vice president (laughs) of divine affairs? Um... There, one of the reasons I, I, I pose this question is this is another one of those troubles I have with poking too hard at Narnia. Um, we talked last time about um, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that classic yeah. uh, C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. book. And there's there's a bit in the Death of Aslan scene where it talks about there's the deep magic. And the rules of the deep magic are if someone's a traitor, mm-hmm. uh, the evil witch gets their life. And someone can die for them in their place, but the evil witch gets a claim on them. Which is, again, it's, kind of, it's atonement talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and Aslan has that great line that says something like, I was there when the, the deep, deep magic, magic was, was written. written. And it's just a beautiful line, but it does imply that Aslan didn't write those rules. And it suggests further, because he has to correct Lucy and um, Susan later on when he rises from the dead, he says the witch didn't understand that there's an even deeper magic that says if someone dies in the place of a traitor, Mm -hmm. then the laws of time get broken and the person comes back to life, something like that. But again, there's this question of, like, who wrote the deep magic, and... Uh, if if you push that image too far, if you say, well, the rules are someone has to suffer for mm-hmm. sin, mm-hmm. You, you're left asking, well, did God come up with these rules or did someone else? And if someone mm-hmm. else did, that's, problem, that's like kind of problematic to begin with. Yeah. If yeah. we say God invented these rules of someone must suffer for sin, but then God says, I don't care who it is, it could be Jesus instead of Bill and Sally and Susan, um, that also seems kind of like, well, what was the point of the, is this just the cup game? We've got sort of your switches and moves around where the sin gets paid for. And what's the point of the whole atonement system that we have in the Old Testament if eventually, you know, if Jesus is going to fix it, why didn't Jesus come along right after Adam and Eve fell? Right, and and the writer of Hebrews will even say things like, we all know the animals in, the, in ancient Israel didn't actually do anything. They were meant to point ahead to the cross. Mm-hmm. But even at that, they're still, okay, then why is why is there this set of rules of someone has to suffer for... Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe this gets at the deeper question of what do we think justice is about? Because mm-hmm. you pointed earlier, the question is about that uh, a righteous and a just God can't abide 
divide injustice on us hurting each other left and right. And I, I get that, you know, even from like a basic human perspective, it's not right, it's not just to have a society where people can go around punching each other and killing each other. I, I get that. The question then becomes, is justice about, well, I have to make you suffer as much as you made somebody else suffer. That's what justice is. Is justice more about, I want to create a world where you don't do that anymore and nobody else has to live in fear of getting punched or killed anymore? Mm -hmm. Is it somehow both? I, I don't know. But even maybe that question needs to get asked. Because maybe Jesus dying and suffering for our sake in our place is meant to teach us to not do those things anymore. Um... So I'm, I'm reminded of this book that I had to read in elementary school called The Whipping Boy. Oh. And this young prince was a brat, and mm -hmm. in an attempt to get the attention of his father, the king, was constantly acting out. But since he's a royal prince, he can't actually be touched. So his parents get for him a whipping boy. Mm -hmm. um, a boy his own age who takes his beatings in place of the young prince. And, you know, it's something like the, um, the whipping boy, who has a name, but I can't remember the name, um, which is probably bad, but, um, he, like, while he's living in the castle being the whipping boy, he learns to do things like read and write and do math, um, but several times a day, he has to be punished for the sins of this young bratty prince, and so he is whipped and beaten and really mistreated, and the whole time, the bratty prince watches. Mm -hmm. And I think it's supposed to teach... It, I don't think it works. I think they had to go on a big adventure for this to actually work, but it's supposed to teach the young prince that, oh, I should behave, otherwise this other boy, who I think gets to sit in on his, like, tutoring like, and is supposed mm -hmm. to be forming some sort of relationship with, um, is punished, and so I don't want to see my friend get hurt, so I'm going to stop doing the bad things. And again, like, I, I could get be trying to build a theology around that, but that mm -hmm. sounds like we've waded into moral influence, that the idea is the atonement mm -hmm. is what teaches me to be a good person. That is As true. opposed <laughs> yeah. to the death actually does something and pays some kind of debt. And again, I, I get, I kind of want to be there because mm -hmm. I get the idea that there's a lot of New Testament language that uses mm -hmm. that imagery. But, like, I, I think of the classic story Jesus tells about the, you know, forgiveness of a debt, right? The guy, mm -hmm. the, the servant who uh, the, the master says, you owe me 20,000 talents, which is, you know, like billions of dollars in modern money if you do the back of the envelope math. So amount of money, not only I have no idea how he racks up that much, but how he could ever pay it back. And he says to the master, please be patient with me, I'll pay it back. And uh, the master has pity on him and cancels the debt outright. And then he's, you know, a jerk to some other slave who owes him a couple hundred bucks or something mm -hmm. like that. And Jesus' point is, if God's forgiven you this immense infinite debt, how will you be, why would you be jerks to each other about little petty debts? Now, again, the logic there is that the master is the one who cancels this debt and just sort of like, it's a, it's a stroke of penmanship. Mm -hmm. It's a, I'm taking the loss, but nobody dies at that. Like, I guess my question right. is how we move from the language of debt, which is, you know, a, a financial transaction of stuff that's worth, you know, money or has that kind of value to now human beings dying. Um, and that, that becomes trickier to me. Um, and when, when I, as a lender, forgive a debt, there's a loss, but I absorb it as the loss. If somebody else, if I'm the judge and I make somebody else die in somebody else's place, the one who dies is the one who pays the penalty or pays the, you know, mm -hmm. takes the hit. And I guess that becomes the, the wrinkle or my concern about how do we avoid sloppy penal atonement substitution uh, uh, atonement theology because it can end up sounding kind of like God is that Shakespearean character who just demands a pound of flesh and he doesn't care whose it is as long mm -hmm. as somebody pays mm -hmm. and that suggests an imagery of justice as it doesn't matter 
who, you know, as long as somebody suffers, that's how you know justice is happening, you know. Um, and I'm not sure that fits with the, the biblical narrative. <laughs> maybe, maybe let me toss this out. Does it make a difference to say that a, a truly Trinitarian theology, saying that Jesus isn't just divine representative, but is mm-hmm. somehow fully God, mm-hmm. that, that that's the key, that it's like God absorbs the, the, the pain, that it's God mm-hmm. who takes on death, and it's not God saying, I don't want to have to deal with this, you take this penalty, or something like that, but in a sense, God still does absorb mm-hmm. the, the, the pain or the penalty at the cross, both in the sense that God knows what it's like to die in Jesus, and God knows what it's like to be the helpless one watching somebody that you love mm-hmm. die, that God, that God, in a sense, knows, knows what it's like to lose a child. Um, and that there's that sense of maybe God taking all that pain into God's own being that's part of what happens. And it's because Jesus is God himself, and not just a human or some divine actor, or somebody speaking on behalf of the divine, that he is that perfect sacrifice that that he can do this. I mean, you know, I could die in your place, but that's not going to save you from your sins. Right. You know, you need somebody who, that, that pure sacrifice, just like the Old Testament, you know, it had to be a spotless lamb and mm-hmm. with no defects or anything. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're onto something, Steve. We're, we're talking about it. This is God that's doing this. Because mm-hmm. sometimes we, we get so focused on Jesus, the human side of Jesus that we forget the divinity. Sure. And the fact that God is taking on, you know, this is God's punishment to humankind for being sinful. You must die. So God dies for us. And let me even pose this question. I wonder even if we jump to the conclusion when we say that the, the wages of sin is death, that that's God setting up a, if you break a rule, I must zap you. Or if it's more to say, when we sin, we are automatically setting ourselves on a path mm-hmm. whose natural end yeah. is death. That like, when I break relationship with somebody else, I'm sort of beginning the slow death of, you know, it ruins things between us. And that instead of saying, like, like it's a set of deep magic rules. If you break a rule, the punishment is decreed, you must get zapped. Mm-hmm. But more to say, you break what God's intention is, now death is going to happen. It, it's what happens when you violate what mm-hmm. God's intention or design for all of creation is. And instead of saying something like, the deep magic says there must be blood, it, you've done this now. Some, someone's got to do something to mend this. Mm-hmm. And to mend it, God steps in and says, okay, I'll, I'll be the one who absorbs death in this moment or something like that. Well, and we see that in the fall, because when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, you know, they're not immediately zapped and, and killed in that moment. Right. They live on, right. but eventually death comes to them. And I think that's an important moment of the way the storytelling gets used by Paul and Romans, who's like, yeah, the wage of sin is death, but it's this, like, it's this condition in which we're all living of like this sort of walking deadness, you know, that like there's something inside us as human beings that's dead that needs being that needs resurrection in us, I guess. Because you had two trees in the garden. You had the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And mm-hmm. so... It's my understanding, and you know, maybe I'm wrong on this, but if they would never have eaten from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, Adam and Eve would have lived, you know, forever. They were immortal because they kept being able to feed off the tree of life. But then when they were banished from that tree of life, well, then eventually death is going to come knocking on their door. It's interesting to me, like, are like I want, I want to, I want to spend the time like going, yeah, what would have happened if they wouldn't have eaten? If that's if the story would have gone differently? And it's interesting to me that like the New Testament, like like, doesn't dabble too much in the alternate history. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, this is the world we got. We're a mess. We're a wreck. There's no way out of it. All of us are a mess. We're children of messes. We're great-great-grandchildren of messes. There's no one who isn't a mess. Mm-hmm. And th- somehow the atonement is about something that's collectively for humanity. Um, 
and yet, um, I don't know, this is, I guess this is the, the place where I struggle about how do we, how do we talk about the, the idea of Jesus as substitute and put up the guardrails that it doesn't become arbitrary, that mm-hmm. it, it, who cares about who it is, someone's got to die. And on the other hand, that we don't box God in with, oh, well, there's these deep magic rules that God, God's required to find a sacrifice or something. I mean, at that point, it almost feels more like a fairy tale. Like, well, the rules are, someone has to die. I guess it's just how the rules are. And the Bible doesn't lean too hard on that. Like, doesn't, like you don't get a lot of, well, the deep magic says, or the rules of the universe, God has to play by those rules. Like, I've heard, and I hear a lot of theologians will say things like, God can't tolerate sin, or gets God, God's not allowed to. And I, like, I get the notion, but there's another piece of me that's like, Okay, but like that—that—that's our way of saying God insists on holiness or something like that. Mm. But don't don't make it sound like there's a set of rules that God has to adhere to. Mm-hmm. No, I've resolved this one. <laughs> I feel like we made a bigger mess. <laughs> I feel like we made a lot bigger mess. Possibly, I think I I think for at least us sitting around this microphone right now, um, this atonement theory tends to just make us have more questions. Yeah. Especially more so than, like, Christus Victor, which I didn't feel like we had as quite as many questions, but... And, and I've heard this one before, and, and, I, and I've and i said, okay, I yeah. get it, I understand it, but now that we've talked about it and we've brought up these questions, now I'm like, man, do I really believe what... <laughs> I guess you, here's my question. Like, we pointed out, I think helpfully so, when we talked about Christus Victor, that there's limits to the analogy. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. some of the limits are... Don't treat it like the battle is yet undecided and Jesus needs your help to join the Lord's army. And on the other hand, don't treat it like Jesus fought the battle, you're not the problem. And that penal substitution, as a, as a counter to that, says, no, you and me, we're the problem. We're sinners. We, we are part right. of the problem. Um, I totally agree with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's, I mean, I think that's an important piece that, like, if all we had was that Chris's victor, man, it would be easy for all of us to do the devil made me do it, and mm-hmm. I'm not the problem, I'm just this helpless victim, and to go, no, we're complicit. And it may mm. be like, if... The, I mean, the, the when Christus Victor paints us as captive of the powers of evil, it's almost like we've got Stockholm Syndrome and we're collaborating with the captors, you know? Mm-hmm. The problem isn't just that someone kidnapped me. The problem is now I'm working with the bad guys and I'm part of evil as well. And penal substitution helpfully says, we're the problem. The human beings, mm-hmm. all of us, are that I, I'm not just captive. I'm actively, you know, doing things mm-hmm. that harm other people and violate relationship with God. I'm sinning, and someone has to deal with my sin, not just abstract sin floating out there. Mm-hmm. And the penal substitution imagery uh, that sort of suggests a way to deal with it. Oh, it's like I'm a I'm a debtor, and God has stepped in and taken my debt. I guess you push too too hard on that though, and it, it that that's where we run into the danger for sloppiness of. Well, how does how how do the rules of this debt work, and mm-hmm. how does God collect that debt? Is it, I mean, it's clearly not in money, it, it, but it, it's not like it's in blood. I mean, how, yeah, that, that that at that point the the metaphor feels like I don't know. The Bible just sort of says this is what it's like, and maybe it's wise to stop there and go. Don't push too hard on this metaphor. And I think that this is a good place to remind ourselves of something we said in the introductory episode, which is that all of these atonement theories are metaphors, mm-hmm. and like all metaphors when we're talking about God or theology, they all at some point fall short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They they can't answer all of the questions. They are going to have holes um, because we're limited in our language and in our understanding of who God is and how God interacts with us. To me, this is why... When we talk about theories, it's helpful to remember that even when, when scientists talk about theories, they're meant to be l- limited descriptions that have 
uh, more or less utility, and that sometimes scientists will come along and say, "We got to tweak the theory here. Or it doesn't hold here." Like so, like last a couple of episodes ago, when I said, like in my mind, I pictured the difference between the way Newton talked about gravity versus mm-hmm. Einstein. Newton works in a small, you know, if you're just talking about you know a planet and an apple falling to Earth, it doesn't work with black holes and galaxies. In a similar way, penal substitution offers a helpful corrective to that Christus Victor. That no, mm-hmm. I'm a sinner. I'm part of the problem. But that if you push too hard on that, there it raises questions that either you have to say, don't ask that question, or you have to say, well, at that point, the analogy breaks down. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really important, because I think a lot of the church folks that I've known all my life have sort of inherited a default penal substitution picture of the atonement, which in a lot of ways is good, but never inherited the, or never learned the, but there, there are limits to this imagery, mm-hmm. and please don't think this is the only way the Bible talks about it. And I've, I've run into folks who will say things like, any other model somebody came up with later, or it's wrong, or backwards, or, you know, like, no, I think we're discovering each of these is incomplete, because no, no single mm-hmm. image can encapsulate all that happens at the cross, and maybe that's how you know you found a divine mystery, and not just a, you know, human fable or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and that's where faith comes in, because faith is just you have to put some level of trust in something you cannot see. The right. authors of Hebrews, you know, says that you know faith is believing in what we cannot see, and um, you know, and so that's what we have to do with all of these different atonement theories because there is that place where they're going to break down, and we're just going to have to say, you know what, God has worked this out, um, you know, yeah. and we just have to trust that God knows what He's doing, and. Just accept that and kind of move on with it, and, and we'll figure it out someday when we meet him face to face. In in a way, I almost feel like I've I've been in the uh, family waiting room in the hospital when a, the surgeon will come and talk to the family and say, "Here's what I'm doing in the surgery today." It'll draw a little diagram, but like here's the bypass and here's what I'm putting it in, and everybody knows this. You know, quickly drawn on the back of a piece of office paper in black, you know, ballpoint pen uh-huh. is not a precise diagram, but it's like okay, I get it because I'm a ordinary non medical person. I get you're drawing a basic drawing for mm-hmm. me because I'm. Not that smart, and you're doing something much more complicated. And yours is in real life; it's in three dimensions, and a person is not a flat piece of paper. But I get it when I'm in those moments. Yeah. You're giving me a picture, and they're gonna, if I ask questions solely based on that picture, you're going to say, "Well, the body isn't really like this." You know, you'll say it's a little bit more complicated, and that maybe that's what we're doing with. But and at the same time. The doctor's ability to perform surgery doesn't depend on me as the patient understanding what the doctor's going to do. There's a certain Mm -hmm. amount of, will I trust that this surgeon will do what is necessary to save my life? Yeah. Uh, And the surgeon's ability doesn't depend on how hard I believe in their ability. It's the doctor brings their own competence, and I just, okay, do what what you think is right here. And in a sense, this is a reminder that we're not saved by our theology. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we're given license to be sloppy, but to say at the end... We may still be left with a lot of questions and wrinkles in the, huh, I don't know where this finally lands. Um, But in the end, nobody, maybe nobody worth their salt, uh, (laughs) says that we're saved because we've got an A on our theology exam. Mm -hmm. That faith isn't, do I have all the answers correct? And that it's okay to say, I trust this God even if I don't Mm -hmm. completely understand what God has done to save me. Because you can, I mean, you can quote every person that's ever come up with these theories and anybody that's ever, you know, used them and, and you can quote what they're all about. But I mean, if you don't have that faith aspect, mm-hmm. it's not going to do you any good. Sure, sure, sure. And that idea of, can I trust this God, even if I don't exactly understand how mm-hmm. God's going to do something through this cross event. And maybe the, the real scandal of the New Testament is that for all the different ways the, the New Testament talks about it, 
they all keep pointing to this weird, unexpected event that nobody would have said is mm-hmm. the defining moment of human history. Somebody laying down their life and getting executed by the Empire. That's what all history hangs on. Even though, you know, the, the Gospel writers themselves kind of hang, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Just, I'm just telling you the story. Here's how it happened. And, and maybe that's why they leave us with, like, the words like the centurion has. Like, sh- when he watches it, he says, surely this was the mm-hmm. Son of God. That, like, mm-hmm. we don't get a diagram. We don't get a, oh, I understand what happened. Oh, a penal substitution just happened. No, it's just... I witness the way this person dies, mm-hmm. and I get it. Somehow, this is the Son of God. Um, and maybe it's okay for us to land there for the day. Yeah. Yeah? All I right. think so. Fair enough. Well, well, we'll open more cans of worms <laughs> next time. Join us to make the things you thought you understood more complicated and to oversimplify the things that seemed too mysterious before. Next time on Crazy Faith Talk. Bye. 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 Bye.